Today's Crypto Daily Briefing is sponsored by Origin Dollar. With inflation still over 6% and CeFi lending platforms going bankrupt, DeFi protocols that earn interest on stablecoins are once again back on crypto investors' minds. APYs on Aave, Compound and Curve are currently around 2%. By the time you pay gas to stake and unstake, it's a question of if it's even worth it for most people. If you want to earn yield on your stablecoins without needing to pay gas, check out Origin Protocol's Origin Dollar stablecoin. OUSD's average APY over the past 30 days is 5%, twice the rate you get lending directly on blue chip protocols. The best part is the boosted yield isn't from leverage or extra risk, it's from extra collateral and is rigorously audited. This is because smart contracts on Curve and other dApps don't support rebasing, so their collateral is working for you. The way Origin describes it, for every $1 of OUSD, there's more than $1 in DeFi working for you. Origin wants you to know as the collateral earns yield through these dApps, the protocol routes rewards to your wallet on a daily basis. Do nothing and your OUSD balance grows daily. If you want to put your stable coins to work, check out Origin Dollar's website. You can mint OUSD from the dApp or swap your stable coins for it on Uniswap to start earning today. For those holding ETH, Origin Protocol is teasing the release of OETH, which does everything OUSD does, but for Ether. It holds liquid staking derivatives to optimize yield. Follow along on Origin Protocol's Twitter and Discord channels. Visit realvision.com slash origin dollar to learn more. Welcome to Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington. Today, I'm joined by Chris Sullivan and Chaim Bodek, both co-founders and co-portfolio managers at Hyperion Decimus, a digital assets hedge funds. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Oh, man, this is a big show today here on a Friday. A lot to talk about. Uh, let's start out with a little bit of news flow. It's NFP day, non-farm payrolls. A couple of charts I want to show you here. Uh, the first chart, chart one, monthly change in jobs. Uh, once again, the print came in hot in April with 253,000 new jobs added. It's a big beat with Wall Street estimates coming in at 180,000 new jobs added. Uh, the chart that you're looking at right there probably tells the story best. You can see those job numbers tailing off and now spiking up again. Uh, that's the most recent month on the right there in orange. Adding jobs is obviously a good thing for workers, but it puts the Fed in a real bind, particularly with everything that's happening right now in the regional banking sector. Let's take a look now at chart two hourly earnings versus CPI. This may look a bit like a Goldilocks scenario uh, when you see inflation rolling over uh, and the increase in earnings from uh, the pandemic lows, uh, but it is definitely not. Uh, while inflation is broadly declining and wages are rolling over a bit, inflation right now is still 2.5x the Fed's target. We're looking at CPI here, not the preferred's target. Uh, that the Fed uses of PCE, that's personal consumption expenditures. Uh, this is consumer price index, but you get the general gist of it from this chart. I'm going to quote from the New York Times here. Average hourly earnings climbed 4.4% in the year through April. That's compared with 4.3% from the previous month. So again, it's up and was more than the 4.2% that economists had expected. So it's a beat. It's up on the prior month. Uh, this obviously is putting the Fed in a difficult position. Uh, they may repeat may be between a rock and a hard place over at the Fed right now. Essentially, what you have is more actively employed workers and accelerating wage growth. That means increasing inflationary pressure at a time when the Fed wants to put rate hikes on pause because of the instability that we're seeing in the regional banking sector. Uh, so it really is a, a challenging and tricky time right now for the Fed. That said, I want to switch gears here and take a look at what's happening in the digital asset space. Bitcoin 
on the day. It's up 2.3% on the last 24 hours. In seven days, it's up around 1.3%. Uh, so for Bitcoin, not a whole ton of activity. Ethereum, 5.6% uh, on a trailing 24-hour basis, seven days. It's up 5.4%. I don't know. Do we even want to do this? We want to look at Pepe. Uh, Pepe obviously has been absolutely mooning here. Uh, you know, anytime there's a chart with five leading zeros, I get a little bit suspicious, but uh, you can draw your own conclusions from that. It's up 125% on a trailing 24-hour basis. And it's up, I don't know, 1,400%. Uh, over the last seven days. I'm not sure what the use case for this thing is, but uh, it's certainly flying uh, upward here in terms of price. Uh, let's get back to our guests. Guys, I'm really excited to talk to you guys. There's so much happening. Uh, let's talk a little bit about where you think we are right now. And for folks who don't know, tell us a little bit about what Hyperium Decimus does. Sure, we're a uh, multi-strat that's quant-driven, kind of in the OG category for vintages of, of hedge funds in the space. And we we just combine a portfolio of, of fundamental conviction names that we hold uh, for long-term and, and, and look to accumulate more with um, you know, differentiated and non-correlated quantitative and systematic strategies so that we're kind of smoothing out the volatility of the space over time and kind of live in between drawdowns and not over, you know, over leverage or skis on the upside. We actually don't employ any leverage within the fund, which has helped uh, sustain our, our returns over time, but um, definitely always are underwriting projects both in the DeFi space and the L1, L2 space are up to speed on all of the you know, roll-ups and different types of uh, technologies that are rolling out that can batch and combine uh, staking and restaking. Um, so always underwriting new concepts, new uh, tokens, and we've really had an uh, amazing time in the space. Yeah, you guys are really OGs in this space. I know we're going to talk about what's happening right now from a legal, regulatory, and compliance front here in the U.S., uh, but this bears on your experience, on your background, what you guys have both done in the space uh, in terms of participation, in terms of whistleblowing, in terms of a lot of different things. Talk a little bit about that. Achaim, why don't you jump in and give us a little bit about your background as well? Well, I started out in the options uh, industry, um, and uh, that was in the uh, late 90s, and uh, I... Um, uh, took like the straight route for quite a, really a large part of my career. Uh, ended up running global option market making at UBS Investment Bank and then jumping out to um, start my own high frequency option trading firm in uh, 2007. Uh, 2011, I took the path, uh, you know, the road not traveled and uh, I became an SEC whistleblower. Um, I since then, you know, we launched uh, the fund in like, 2017, and uh, you know, I do a lot of other things. Uh, uh, but in terms of like uh, whistleblowing, I have been active uh, with um, probably at least 20 investigations over the last um, 12 years uh, with the SEC. Uh, awarded uh, two major multi-million dollar awards for the work, and um, uh, I'm. Uh, you know, my first uh, major whistleblowing experience was uh, turning in undocumented features that were that were used by high frequency trading firms uh, and uh, uh, Direct Edge, uh, which was owned by BATS, was uh, fined $14 million for those. So I was completely vindicated on that. Uh, the work I did then uh, resulted in uh, over 500 pages, according to Stan, our, our regulatory 
uh, officer, officer Harry, uh, over 500 pages in the Federal Registrar where exchanges were forced to disclose features that they had provided high frequency traders and didn't really tell anyone else about. So, um, you know, that was a major um, contribution in terms of uh, the, the evolution of the US market system uh, that I'm known for. Um, uh, I think I'm in uh, with four documentaries on this. There's a book written about it called Dark Pools. I've written uh, two books, The Problem of HFT and The Market Structure Crisis. Problem of HFT actually became a lawsuit that went all the way up to, was actually appealed to the Supreme Court. So um, yeah, I've been in the trenches for a long time with regard to how market structure operates in the US. Yeah, when, when it comes to market structure, when it comes to regulation, uh, you guys have been there and been doing this for a very long time uh, in the TradFi space, uh, in the options space, just a lot of experience that you bring to this, which is why I'm so curious to get your view on what's happening right now, what's happening in digital asset markets. How do you see this interaction between the markets themselves and the regulatory structure uh, that is meant to, in theory, protect customers, uh, create capital accumulation and form orderly rules of the road? Where are we with that, guys, in your view right now? I thought things would be better by now. I've been, as I said, I got into to, uh, the market reform, uh, you know, role because uh, my firm was was a, a victim of back you know, in 2011. Um, we um, we have a more complicated, more fragmented market now, and 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 in terms of regulatory coherency. Uh, I think it's actually been eroded, especially in the last few years. Um, if you want to talk about crypto assets in particular, uh, one of the things that has been um, a problem is the uncertainty in terms of what regulator is actually in charge of these markets. And, um, right. you know, we've been operating um, with, with the view that, that the CFTC has put forward that the um, you know vast majority of crypto assets are uh, commodities, and uh, you know you, there's there's actually things on on, the, on you know the CFTC has actually given statements saying that, and now more recently this year, uh, the SEC is uh, you know taking this novel approach that um, that their statement is that the vast majority of crypto assets are securities and um, you probably saw the headlines on, on Coinbase uh, being uh, in the crosshairs of that, uh, you know, the evolution there uh, in terms of uh, regulatory position. Yeah. Um, and uh, in fact, we just spoke with uh, the chief legal officer of uh, Coinbase, Paul Graywall, earlier this week. Of course, uh, they had were served a Wells notice by SEC for precisely that point. So in terms of uh, <clears throat> regulatory ambiguity challenge uh, whatever you want to call it right now we're right in the thick of it we're, we're in the actual center now if you go back in time um you have the uh what you have in the u.s is really interesting um you know for me in terms of uh, whistleblowing and uh what i learned very early on is there's a, there's actually a competitive environment uh among regulatory agencies so you know i have been um, either working directly with or been interviewed and, and, and you know, consulted with uh, um, the CFTC, the SEC, New York Attorney General, um, 
the DOJ, um, and uh, you know, I even met with the FBI at one point. <laughs> and what's interesting is they don't coordinate as much as you would think that they do. And uh, often uh, they will directly compete. At one point, uh, I was actually told by a person at New York Attorney General that they see themselves as competitive with the SEC. Now, there is actually, at first, I thought that was not great, you know, having this. So this is the New York State Attorney General, uh, the state law enforcement uh, chief's office here, not the uh, not the U.S. Attorney's Southern District right. of New York, where a lot of this yeah. takes place. I know this gets confusing for a lot of people, but this is really a, a, a very sort of complex patchwork of regulation and enforcement that we're looking at. And we're trying to unpack it here with uh, right. folks who are really experts. So what happens is if one agency, uh, let's say the SEC, does not pursue, a, a, um, let's say, an enforcement action that is valid, uh, and this has happened. Uh, this happened with the with the dark pools. The New York Attorney General moved first. Interestingly, by, as by the way, dark pools for people who may not yeah, know sorry. are pools of, of uh, securities that are being traded where uh, the block size and the uh, and the holder of the securities is not known, so that they can be uh, matched up in theory with uh, less market impact from knowing who you're tra who you're trading against. Right. So so what I'm saying in in, in one uh, looking at it from one angle. The competition between regulators at times can end up making the market better because uh, one uh, regulator may step up and take action in in legitimate scenario where the other has decided not to. And you know, I gave an example of the dark pools. Um, so you already you know you definitely see that because we we have with the crypto assets because we've had every every regulator that. Um, has that uh, probably I think everyone I've mentioned has had some action in the crypto asset space. Uh, the problem uh, really is uh, when um, the when when the regulators basically push interpretations of uh, of the rules, um, you know, and and that's what the SEC is doing now. Uh, it's a it's a huge deal uh, if uh, uh, crypto assets get reclassified from one asset class to another. I mean, just think of the, the tax implications of, of that, for example. Right. And to, and to that point, just to just to double click on it and to make this point clear for people who are relatively new to this. Um, you know, you said earlier that CFTC has made statements uh, that obviously contradict the statements that have come out of SEC. Uh, but just to give you a sense of just how codified this is, I want to read some language from a complaint filed by CFTC against Binance. Again, Binance has a chance to respond to this. I'm just using this as an example uh, of the way the framework that CFTC is using. Uh, it, it goes on to mention here uh, Binance uh, and CZ directly. And then it says, uh, quote, has solicited and accepted orders, accepted property to margin, and operated a facility for the trading of futures, options, swaps, and leveraged retail commodity transactions involving digital assets that are commodities, including Bitcoin, BTC, Ether, ETH, and Litecoin, LTC, for persons in the United States. So this isn't, you know, a junior staffer speaking at a conference and, and making reference to uh, these assets being uh, commodities. This is actually in a formal complaint that CFTC has filed saying, in fact, these are commodities. Now, uh, if you go over to the other side, SEC very clearly uh, in their Wells notices, in their public statements has made the implication uh, or the statement 
that in fact they are securities. This is a very confusing time for anyone in the United States who wants to operate in this space, who wants to be a good actor and who wants to remain in compliance with all the relevant federal, state and local regulations and laws. It is a very tricky business. It, it, yeah, it not only is that, but the application and then the narrative, right, has rotated in the five, six years we've been professionally doing this multiple times, right? And just what you pointed out, that's just in the in the recent, you know, last few months where wait, you're you're claiming and asserting a wrongdoing, but then classifying the assets that were part of the wrongdoing while the other regulator is taking the opposite position. And our, our sort of ethos has always been, all right, let's let's assume securities laws and regs, let's assume commodity laws and regs. What are the differentials and how do we best prepare to be compliant with both in either scenario? And then here it's like, well, do, do we just ping pong back and forth? And then the right. lawyers, the lawyers don't know what to say. And you can have we we actually have three outside counsels. Our chief regulatory officer is a JDMBA. So, you know, everybody's uh, opinion going forward and then the analysis has been sort of retraded for lack of a better phrase multiple times in the last few years and especially the last 12 months um our concern is that you end up judicially litigating a lot of these issues instead of clarifying with nomenclature and semantics which i think you know the the position of the space should be let's not be combative let's use this as an opportunity to be further transparent in, in the ethos and mantra of the space and show and prove that, hey, we are already in compliance with ABC under the CFTC. We are already in compliance with XYZ with the SEC. Please let us know where we're deficient and we give us a reasonable period to Im improve or eliminate those deficiencies. That's it and everybody plays well together. Um, mm -hmm. That being said, none of the concerns that we would have as investors or, or business owners have been assuaged by any of the you know current actions or lack of action whether it's supervisory or consumer protections which to me you know rings true the most because as long as consumers are protected then right. if the big boys and, and girls lose money who cares right like that's right. their they can bet whatever side they want but um, and, and um, in fact one of the reasons we've probably seen uh, this upswing in regulatory and enforcement action is because retail customers in the United States got hurt around FTX. And it is a it is a real challenge. Listen, to exactly that point, guys, I want to bring this conversation up to uh, a level where folks who are out there in the retail space who are thinking about this can have some takeaways and try and understand it. You know, guys, what you're watching right now, this is the real deal. This is unfiltered. You've got two OGs in the hedge fund, hedge fund space who are telling you what's actually happening on the inside. I know this can be a little bit complicated, but the reason for that is that we are actually looking, we're drinking from the fire hose here, actually getting to what's really happening in this space, which is why I'm always so appreciative when both of you guys come on the show. So what should people be taking away from this conversation uh, who may have never been in a room with guys like you who work at a hedge fund who actually think about how these markets work, uh, think about the legal and regulatory implications? What should they be taking from this conversation? Well, well one of the things, and I'm not really happy to say this, but the regulatory uncertainty is um, acting to um, as an impediment to you know true adoption by by institutions in large scale. Uh, in, in a way, th this issue, um, you know, regulators are supposed to come in and provide um, you know clarity. 
clarity, but like they're supposed to come in to protect markets and make them more investable. And this turf battle in crypto between different regulators and the and uncertainty, and then also, uh, you know, basically creating policy through enforcement, like, like you know, for example, in that Wells letter, uh, you know, these are things that are, are bad for the space right. and uh, bad for retail because uh, you want markets to have lots of liquidity and uh, you want there to be a lot of edge in there. What we're seeing is, uh, uh, you know, a, a lot of fragmentation. Uh, we're seeing a decline in liquidity and we're seeing a more dangerous trading environment. And so I would say that retail should be looking at this as a danger to the market and uh, to the degree that things are not resolved, um, you know, be careful out there in, in, in you know, in, in the marketplace. Uh, the danger to this market, and I, I want to just underline this because I know that there are probably a lot of people watching this who have never had the, uh, oh, I don't know, shall we say pleasure of working at a bank. Uh, what you're saying, Haim, if I understand it correctly, uh, is that these are significant headwinds because what, what, what winds up happening is the folks in the corner offices who work at banks, as we all have uh, in this conversation, someone walks in uh, to the office and says, hey, man, I want to trade crypto. Let's make markets in this. We want to do some cool stuff with this. And the guy or gal who's sitting in that corner office says, are you kidding me? I read the Wall Street Journal. Why do I need this misery in my life? There's no clarity here. This is going to wind up pulling me uh, into depositions and lawsuits uh, and conversations with regulators that I just don't want to have right now. I've got a business to run. And this, as you say, if I'm understanding correctly, Haim, is a significant headwind and a risk to price because there is an absence of liquidity, depth to the markets, uh, and institutional adoption. Well, Ash, it does work both ways on price, right? So I, I think the main takeaway is the, the adoption, right? Right. Because, you know, we, as U.S. citizens and believers that U.S. rule of law is the shining beacon of, of actionable fact, right? And our court system, right. at least historically, has been a, a, a good arbiter of that. Um, maybe not so much recently, but... I think now you're, you've seen examples like the Liechtenstein bill that went first to really focus on segment segmentation and taxonomy and category, categorization and the Mika bill that came out of Europe. Those are legitimately reasonable proposals based on the differentiation of assets. And not only do we risk economic and, and jobs and business formation in the US by not collectively setting standards and, and rules of, and procedures, but we, we also like are alienating a massive innovation um, marketplace globally, a massive, massive philosophical movement for decentralization, which right. literally well, it's just going to push it over right. overseas. And that's the issue. I mean, Coinbase has said that, you know, publicly that they just launched a new exchange, uh, uh, you know, overseas. And so, so did Gemini. Yeah, and you know, as you know, in a way, as statement statements that this and they're and they're regulated by I think it's the is it the uh, Bahamas Monetary Authority that's regulating the Coinbase overseas exchange. By the way, U.S. Uh, residents, U.S. persons are not able to trade on that exchange. They are excluded from doing so by U.S. law. Exactly. So this this issue is impacting um, everybody actually. Um, and what you just you know, said earlier about the about institutions being on the sidelines. Uh, when we started this this fund, it was 
uh, directed and continues to be directed uh, to satisfy uh, institutional investor needs. And what we have seen over and over and over is um, the, fits the, and the fits and start. Exactly. They, they, you know, the environment looks good. The interest is there. And then something in the crypto space, um, you know, uh, stops the interest and, uh, and and makes people defer, uh, you know, investment. And uh, you know, FTX was 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 that. And uh, but we, what we didn't expect, what I didn't expect, is the regulators to create more uncertainty after FTX, right? To to create. Right now, you look at it and. Um, not only are you worried about, uh, not only would an institutional investor be worried about the next, you know, an, another FTX type situation that could uh, destroy capital and contaminate markets, but we're now looking at the regulators as a risk. I This is the first year I'm looking at the regulators as literally a risk to the crypto marketplace. I would just say like flat out, um, I do not see a, a, any of the regulators who we named here is showing the the confidence and care to actually develop this market, right? Like, the, I mean, the SEC is for with the equity markets. You know, with their with their mandate, they have a dual mandate to enforce laws and uh, and and you know protect uh, customers from harm or uh, market participants from harm, uh, but they also have a mandate to protect the health of of the markets in terms of fostering economy. What we're not seeing from these regulators who are doing land grabs for digital assets is a care to help, um, uh, you know, nurture those markets. Right. In, in my my personal position right now, knowing uh, knowing very much, you know, so much about how markets are regulated by the SEC and, and also with the CFTC, um, you know, how they uh, regulate uh, uh, spot markets and, and, and commodity markets. Um, I look at both of those and I'm like, you know what? They're not, those two agencies are not qualified to regulate this space. I, I think there should be, and then, you know, yeah, go for it. I, I'll just say it out loud, right? I think there should be another agency. I do not even think the agency could be a subdivision of, of, of you know, CFTC or SEC um, because, uh, they, You're talking about creating a whole new agency whole new, to, for, for, for digital, digital assets. In your view, that would be the best thing for these markets. Uh, absolutely. And and just, just in the same way that crypto assets or digital assets were designed with the intent to kind of replace the old order and to create a new economic system, right? I don't actually think at this point in time, looking at how the actors are, are, are you know, how they're, how, how the agencies are acting, uh, I think you need to see the same thing with regulation, a complete from the bottom rethinking and redesign of of the of the regulation and you know with regard to digital assets. And you know, by the this way, this is, is right, right from I want to read this right from the SEC's website in terms of what their mission is. The SEC's longstanding three-part mission is to protect investors, maintain fair, orderly, and efficient markets, and finally to facilitate capital formation. And it goes on to say that remains their touchstone. Uh, there is a, a real question right now in the minds of many investors, many participants in this community and in this space about whether they are in fact facilitating capital formation right now. No, I mean, they, they, they absolutely are not. And it's not the position of the 
digital asset and crypto space to be adversarial, right? Uh, most most of the you know long term advocates and long term developers in the space they're not even conscious of this dynamic, right? They're they're focused on code, new economic systems, the the metaverse, the Web three development, the DeFi side. Like they're focused on building and allowing for this. Um, you know, improvement and increasing of velocity of money. Like right now, if you pull up that chart, Ash, it's like, and that that's 100% correlated to the wealth divide, right? As velocity of money goes down, wealth divides further. And instead of, of fostering, or even just applying the existing rules and regs, which really in my eyes have never prevented calamity anyways. So unfortunately for all of the taxpayers of, of the US, like even though we fund these, organizations, they've not prevented Enron or WorldCom or 08 or 87, 89 savings and loan, or even what's going on right now with the banking system. I mean, it's right. laughable. No one's paying attention to duration mismatches, or we got a fake mark to market at a hundred cents in a dollar because you're bankrupt. I mean, it's just. Yeah. It's and just now, sad. by the way, you can just pick up your cell phone and move money uh, in 45 seconds to another bank that uh, you believe is uh, uh, is going to be better backstop. Maybe it's a GSIB. So there is this sort of rising risk coming with the technology and, of course, the, the cyclical story of rising rates. By the way, if anyone wants to take a look at the chart that Chris is referring to, it's the velocity of the M2 money stock. Uh, that's M2V on the Fed Fred database. Guys, I want to jump in here because we have and, and I know this sounds like a, a line, but it's true. We've got the smartest viewers in the space. These questions are always unbelievably great. Yep. And I want to get to some of these questions because our, our audience is very sophisticated on this. This first one comes to us from William on the Real Vision website. If the SEC were to get its way and ETH were declared to be a security, what would be the worst that would happen to ETH since brokerages of ETH would simply migrate to, say, the UK? If the SEC were to prevail, could ETH simply comply and register as security with little harm to investors? What an interesting question. Yeah, that that's uh, it's like 15 questions in one to unpack. But that's um, reason, man. That's what we expect. Yeah. So th theoretically, the the registration and the requirements are, are easy. You hire securities council and you show like what what you fall under as far as is it an investment contract is there an expectation of profit yada 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 uh but but it's already a commodity it's not debatable the 100 percent of issuance is out there it burned thousands it burns thousands almost every day it's almost every day deflationary so it, it to me it cannot be argued on the merits that it's a security where where you could get the delineation is those that are offering it separating exchange and broker dealers and and semantically identifying that and saying that here's an offering of an investment contract through this vehicle or product that does constitute an investment contract therefore is a security but as far as like the eth founders and foundation and community like going through that process i i think they would obviously be willing to do that but i there's just no way that it's a it's a security Absolutely. I'm just I'm just not even sure how you could have a, a registration for a, a decentralized digital asset like ETH. I, I just I just don't and I'm, I'm not being critical here. I'm just trying to get my head around how SEC regulation would apply to something that's run by a foundation and not a board of directors, not a company, not a traditional corporate structure. It's just a really hard thing to understand. Well, it's not a for profit operation. Either. I think I think the question is to also to what end. Right. And this is basically just interference in the growth of the asset, right? Uh, I think one one place uh, in terms of microtransactions, uh, that type of constraint 
uh, I mean, can you imagine if we had to, uh, if you know, you know a, a regular like, like PayPal, uh, we had to use, uh, uh, you know, PayPal transactions all of a sudden were deemed securities, and that you know, like how would the market operate if payments went to securities? Well, that's exactly what they're saying. They're saying that these crypto uh, assets, uh, digital assets, which are so integral to to payments and micropayment systems, uh, are securities, and that puts it into an entirely different jurisdiction where right. most institutions are not registered to handle them. Right? It would. It would. It's. 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 Um, it's. It's really not. Um, being managed with with the uh, kind of the idea, it's 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 really reactionary. It's like, well, okay, no one is overseeing it all, so SEC's got to do it. But they, if they're going to do it, they also need to um, protect the the purpose and 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 the, and the growth potential right. and usage of of this asset class, which they they're not involved in at all. Really and that's exactly what we were just talking about before in terms yeah. of the triple mandate that SEC has. I just want to move on because we've got so many great questions here. This one comes to us from Ralph on the Real Vision website. Boy, this is a good one for you guys because I know you're going to have data on this. Uh, could you expand on the decline in liquidity in crypto markets? How do you think about it? And which liquidity metrics do you find more or less useful? Um, the fun and pain in the neck part about crypto is the jurisdictional siloing of capital, right? And then the on-chain component creates new and interesting data sets, both you know, first derivative, second derivative, et cetera, uh, for us to analyze. So it's really fun, a lot of wandered lust and, and exploratory analysis, applying alpha concepts from uh, the traditional markets. But you know, you can come at that a number of different ways. If you, if you isolate to Bitcoin, right? 53%-ish was pulled off exchange to cold storage. The duration, uh, once something goes to cold storage, becomes you know, a year to 18 months when it's held. So that's one liquidity draw that's a positive. In, in Bitcoin, et cetera, here's one that's a negative. Well, Heim pointed out market makers, right? Well, if a, a bank or a hedge fund or a you know, prop firm had a market-making desk that was creating liquidity in Bitcoin and they're US based. And now they're like, well, just like you said, Ash, we can't get sued. And we're, if we're only going to make 20 bips of trade, but then we're going to have 500 bips in legal costs, then we're going to withdraw. <laughs> so we've seen that in order books. You know, we, we can't name names, right? But you could see it in order books, both both top of book and far out. Um, and then you see liquidity migrate to venues and jurisdictions that arguably aren't certainly not as safe for, for retail investors and, and not as safe uh, for professional investors. Like, you know, we're one of the only funds that didn't have all of the above. I won't pick on any of the bad counterparties, but we underwrote them and, and through that underwriting and diligence decided that we couldn't measure a lot of things and therefore would not participate. Right. Um, Chris, I, I, I appreciate the uh, the elegant circumlocution there. I know there are a lot of things that you can't say because you guys are a market participant uh, and are working with these current parties. So I appreciate you giving us this view. Uh, guys, I could go six hours here, uh, but unfortunately, we're already over time. Fantastic to have you guys join us. Chris, you got one more thing you want to add? Yeah, I just wanted to finish the question, answering the question for Ralph. So 
Um, then you want to look at DeFi for really the signaling for adoption and then looking outside of Bit and ETH liquidity because that's where participants are both in, in there and going to be there forever by choice or perhaps trapped. Mm -hmm. So I think that from a signaling perspective and an understanding the scope of the nature of liquidity and how it's cyclically rotating in both short-term and long-term, that's a good thing to monitor and keep track of. And DeFi is the place to get those price signals. Uh, Chaim, final point that you wanted to make? Oh yeah, I was, I was just going to say one of the ways uh, uh, that you, you know, a, a surrogate for liquidity is is really um, slippage in trading costs. And right. of course, we measure that very accurately. So so when we say, you know, um, liquidity is down, we're, we're, we're really talking about specific venues are no longer functioning, giving us the, the neutral volume that we want. I mean, one way to think about uh, liquidity is if you disagree with the market, you can trade all day. I can trade a ton of volume by being wrong, but getting out there and trying to match with other parties uh, when you're right, when you're right, is very right. difficult. And and as liquidity goes down, it becomes more and more difficult. You'll see that in your transaction costs. Nothing much worse than losing money on a trade by transaction costs when you're right, <laughs> guys. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Fantastic. I mean, this is it. If you, uh, I know this uh, conversation goes into the weeds, but if you made it through, this is it. You got to be in the room uh, to listen to this unfiltered conversation. Really fantastic, both of you. I hope we can come back and do this again soon. Thank you. Thank you. Today's episode of the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing is in partnership with Origin Protocol's Origin Dollar. Put your stablecoins to work in DeFi at realvision.com slash origin dollar.